It's so quiet, said Pippin. Gandalf replied, It's the deep breath before the plunge. Pippin said, I don't want to be in a battle, but waiting on the edge of one I can't escape is even worse. Recognize this quotes movie? Stay tuned to find out or check out the title of this episode of Talking Pictures Trivia. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Um, KJ. And I'm Chris. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. In round one, each question is worth one point, and in round two, each question is worth two points. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Tom, tell us about today's movie. Today, we are going back to 2003 to conclude Peter Jackson's first foray into Middle-earth, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Return of the King was released in theaters alongside Disney's Eddie Murphy's Haunted House, The Last Samurai, and Big Fish. Chris is our questioner today, providing handcrafted questions. Chris, what is The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King all about? After five hours of on-screen walking, our diminutive ring bear and his small companions are at the threshold of Mordor ready to destroy the Ring of Power. The remainder of our fellowship strives to hold off the advancing legions of orcs and elephants from destroying the realms of man, all while befriending the undead. How will The Lord of the Rings wrap up? Tom, if you only had one word to describe The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, what would it be? Enomtie. KJ? Ending. 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 Nick? Gardner. And my word would be culmination. It's time for question one. So once again, for this movie, we actually have a prologue. And in this prologue, we actually get to see a little bit of Smeagol's backstory, Gollum's backstory, actually. So my first question is, why does Smeagol think that his friend should give him the ring? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, KJ, you were the last to lock in. So what do you think? What was the reason why Smeagol was trying to convince his friend to give him the ring? Uh, Smeagol was telling Deagle that it was Smeagol's birthday. Therefore, he should have the ring. Nick, what about you? Birthday. And Tom? Yeah, I had the same. It's my birthday. Well, in no change from the last episode, if anybody actually listened, I, my question's way too easy. All three people got the <laughs> question right. Congratulations for getting one point. Uh, the reason I wanted to bring this up is because every one of these movies has had a prologue. Uh, this prologue was a little bit on the different side from the others. And I just wanted to kind of talk about what you thought about Gollum's backstory, what you thought about any of the prologues in general. And just kind of like general, you know, do you like that setup of having a prologue before every movie before you jump right in back into the action? So this trilogy is an incredible adaptation of the book. I, I really think so. There's a few things they chose not to adapt for Return of the King, which makes a lot of sense for the movie. But I wish they were in there. But one of the really good choices they made was just showing us Smeagol's story instead of having that explained by another character. I thought that was a, a great way to open this movie. I thought it was a great way to get us back into Middle-earth, just like um, in Two Towers when we went uh, and followed uh, Gandalf. Um, so I really like this opening scene. 
Did you think that Smeagol was going to always have like a speech effect or impediment? Like when you see him not transformed into Gollum. I know the first time I watched this, I was kind of like, oh, he's always talked that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's an odd thing because none of the other hobbits do. Yeah. Uh, just... he's, he's a different type of hobbit, though. He's a river hobbit. He's not a shire hobbit. So maybe that's the justification. Um, well, and it's years, right? There's like accents and... Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd have trouble talking to Ben Franklin, and that's not as far. But the back other as Deagle Frodo. didn't have that. Like anyway, I just yeah, 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 that's true. That was. Is it a Jar Jar Bing situation out. going on? <laughs> yeah, I I like the the prologue a lot, and it's also Nick. You said something last week in our our first impressions that these movies kind of come off as one large movie, and I think that's right because because they were all made at the same time, and the. The, those kind of prologues have a, a means of, they, kind of, they kind of break up the action a little bit so you're not in one 12 hour movie but it's able to take a breath and also the, the Schmeagel story is really haunting like uh, Peter Jackson comes to this trilogy from the horror genre mostly that was his his the films he's made uh, some good some some bad um but that really plays strongly in this prologue. It's a terrifying one. We see him kind of cra uh, trapped in these rocks and he's looking at the ring and he can't remember his own name anymore. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very creepy and scary prologue. Even the music, as he continues to be corrupted by the ring and degrade and transform into what we now know him in the films, it's really well done. I think it's, I have to say the prologues in general on the sequels really do a good job of getting you right back in. I do kind of wish this prologue was a little bit longer though. I don't think we get enough of Smeagol as the not corrupted. Because I, I, that was always my, my initial thing. Like we get to see Frodo go from lighthearted, everybody's hobbit in, in the fellowship. And we get to see him in the final scene of this movie and, and see him be really, really like, wrapped up in the power of the ring and i don't think we get to see that with smeagol and i know we're supposed to just assume that it happens but was you know I, i'm you're not given enough character development i guess with smeagol i guess you can't develop every character either but like i don't know that smeagol was a good hobbit before you know that prologue either I, unless i was told so then that's i guess that's the only thing i would have liked to have seen but in a three-hour movie can you really add five more minutes to show me more smeagol i guess maybe that's not a not a good way to start a film you do get the good Schmeagol though, right? Because it's like Schmeagol and Gollum, the, the kind of the, the split personality is the way they depicted. And and Schmeagol seems, there's a, at least a part of him who wants to treat Master well, to help Master, right? So you, you get the impression that throughout his actions as, as the leader of this trio, that there is this kind of good heart there that's been corrupted so i just got the impression that that was there was a kind of good good hobbit well to get too nitpicky at this point in time right sauron's at his least powerful so the ring should be far less corruptive than it was when bilbo had it and so at least in the movie why was it so quick to have smeagol strangle his friend but i, I don't want to fault peter jackson or or tolkien for any of this like you know you're telling a story you need certain things to happen so 
I was okay with that change of heart. It's time for question two. All right. So for question two, we're going to jump a little further ahead in the, in the movie. Uh, in the film, we see our first glimpse of Minas Tirith, the seat of power of Gondor and the home of Baramir from, from movie one and Faramir, who we met in, in uh, movie two. Like every great city, the Big Apple, Sin City, Minas Tirith has a nickname. What is the nickname? Locked in? Yeah, I'm going with a guess. So <laughs> Yeah. Locked in with a guess. I can imagine Boromir advertising it and using its um, mm. nickname. but I have to lock in, but okay, I'm just going to say it. It was something of, I think it was like something of man. Um, the Sanctuary of Man. All right, KJ, what about you? What do you think the nickname to Minas Tirith is? Was it the White City? And Tom? I had the White City also. I'm a little confused because I think that's also Chicago, but I had the White City. So the White City is one of the nicknames for the city. It wasn't the one that was mentioned in this specific movie, though. After Pippin picks up the uh, the all-seeing eye, the, the, the orb at Isengard, him and Gandalf have to run to Minas Tirith very quickly. And uh, they actually, Gandalf says that this is known as the City of Kings. This is what Minas, what Minas Tirith is actually nicknamed of. Yes, that is correct. All right. The reason I brought this one up is that we're jumping right from the prologue all the way to the, the penultimate battle. I wanted to go all the way to the Battle of, of Gondor, Battle of Minas Tirith and Pelennor Fields. And just, I think we'd be remiss if we talked about the Lord of the Rings or Return of the King and didn't talk about this battle. It had so many good things like people riding on elephants. Uh, so I just wanted to get your uh, get your opinions of it, what you noticed about it, anything that you thought stood out about the the final battle. It's wonderfully choreographed. It it's larger than Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep battle is is beautiful, but this is larger in scale. It looks great. There's a lot of parallels in the in the the. the the blocking so a lot of times you'll see these knights ride across the plain and the city itself is actually pretty symmetrical even though it, it's you know it's these collection of circles that are moving up um, and usually when it's shot from the field you could see the city as this kind of parallel thing and the orcs especially that lead orc who um who's very physically deformed He's obviously completely asymmetrical. His body's asymmetrical. His face is asymmetrical. And so the that collection of images clashes really nicely. And you're also able to follow where everyone is and what's happening um, and how a command structure is sort of working amongst the orcs. It's, it's easy to follow and, and spectacular in its size as well. I completely agree, Tom. It, it is incredible how well you know what's going on all the time. That is not only great in this movie, but I feel like it was probably a playbook for movies moving forward as well. My problem with the battle is that it's an absolute good versus an absolute evil. I think Game of Thrones does this a little bit better where you understand both sides. You know why each side is fighting. This is, look, these guys are good. These guys are bad, period. There's nothing... There's no redeeming the men that are on the elephants. We don't get any of their story. They're just bad. Um, I, I, It's also a little weird how many times, oh, they're just about to lose. Oh, wait, these guys showed up. Oh, they're just about to, oh, these guys showed up. And it kind of works. And I, I know the theater, they cheer and everything, but I, it's 
part of the reason I don't like this movie that much is this battle's almost too big. When you were saying about different elements showing up, all I heard in my head was the chant, Grand, 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 Grand. <laughs> the big wolf head that comes to do, be the battering ram. Like there were these elements that would add. I'm like, how did they get that thing all the way up there? <laughs> you know? And why so, didn't they use it immediately instead of the, starting with the little battering ram? <laughs> I'll, I'll give them a little leeway, but it is funny, those different elements. What I did like is some of the creative defensive solutions that Ministereth had. So for example, they had trebuchets, but what's usually used to siege, they were using in the other direction and taking apart parts of their city so they could throw the boulders and the rocks out at the you know oncoming army. I mean, it, it, I don't know if that ever really had any historical significance in real life, like any basis, but it was an interesting take. <laughs> I kind of agree with KJ on this one. I, I, this battle seems a little redundant to me. We just saw the Battle of Helm's Deep in the last movie, and I know you need to have a culminating fight here. You need to show the good versus evil, but a lot of this fight felt the same to me. Uh, like he said, you know, why it was leaning one side, the orcs were getting ready to win, and lo and behold, the horse riders come. It's the same exact ending as what happened in Helm's Deep, except Gandalf was inside the city instead of outside of it this time. Uh, I did like a couple of the changes. I thought it was really cool to see how the orcs used fear to their to their side. Uh, it's a little bit of a graphic scene, but they they show the orcs returning the prisoners to Minas Tirith and it, they're literally catapulting the heads of the yeah, of the yeah. of the first army the first wave of, of soldiers that went out to, to face them it's very interesting like how two different good versus evil would would kind of come out of war scene like that uh KJ I just wanted to ask you one question about your about your it's only good versus evil what did you think about the ghosts this is the first time we've seen that there's actually like a ghostly presence in Lord of the Rings. And what did you think about them? Because they're not really necessarily good or evil. They're kind of somewhere in the middle, right? Well, I I would think Tolkien would argue that they are good because they're on the side of men back in the day. Um, they were not loyal and they were uh, late or treacherous, you might say. Um, and then they had to repay their their debt. So I, I don't think they're evil. They're just kind of bad, right? They, they don't derive from a devil or from Sauron. They still derive from whatever the gods are in this um, in, in, in Middle-earth. Um, and then to bring up my favorite thing, which unfortunately we didn't bring up too much in the Two Towers, um, they were also very eucatastrophic, right? If they hadn't betrayed back then, maybe they would have won. Who knows? But since they didn't, they were available now when all hope was lost. This terrible thing that happened in the past turned out to be a very good thing for right now. They're only good if you're Isildur's heir. <laughs> Otherwise they are bad and they are going to kill you for going into their domain in the mountains. <laughs> uh, but yes, they were oath breakers effectively back in the day. And this was the only thing that would help them be redeemed. Although I will say there's one line with Gimli that I feel is a little bit out of character. He's like, maybe you don't free them from their obligation because they're handy to have around. And he's like, no, I'm going to do it. It's like, not a bad point. <laughs> yeah. But I also felt it was a little out of character for Gimli. I feel like they're, that whole crew is fairly honorable. I, I was going to say, so my defense of this, this battle and why I think it's different than Helm's Deep and actually is 
is thematically evolving the story is that we see um, pretty pivotal characters die or deal with death or being knocked down, right? We see the King of Rowan being killed. Um, we see uh, like Gandalf's staff broken. We also see a kind of diversity because we see Denethor die as well. We see kind of like the bad leader die. We see somebody experience death in different ways. The King of Rohan experiences death nobly and moves on, is now worthy to join his fathers in the hall. Um, Denethor isn't. He is, um, he's somebody for whom death becomes this kind of blind, right? He, he just sort of embraces death in, in terms of, of hopelessness and what have you. Um, and it, that doesn't seem to be as strong a theme in like the Helm's Deep battle, right? Where we have the one elf character who's a, a fairly minor character die, and that's sad. But I think this movie especially is about um, dealing with death, dealing with the kind of underworld and coming out from, from the underworld. And death is a big part of that. And I think this battle deals, starts to advance that theme in this movie really well yeah I, I i see what you're saying tom and i guess that that does actually happen in the film but the battle mechanics and the visuals are so distracting compared to the deaths of the kings i'd forgotten um the king of rohan had died i i obviously remember oh. kind of thor dying it's pretty um extreme um and and not to compare it to the book again i feel like they had more time they, they were able to do that more in the book so again great adaptation at least it's still in there and we get to see some of it but while i'm sitting on the couch or wherever watching this movie i'm not feeling it as much as i would have hoped if i had to compare the two helm's deep is definitely like tighter like that's a battle and there's definitely, you can evolve more with it where they were throwing more things at you sporadically for the battle at Ministereth. But also you go back to that battle like a million times, like other things are going on. So then you catch up where we left off. And usually that's when the next wave or the next challenge comes up. But I will say, regardless of how you feel about either of these battles, one thing that really jumped out at me was that the visual effects held. They still are darn good. If you think about this, this was all made in the early 2000s. I was still very, very happy with how everything held up. I'd be interested to know if they touched up the visual effects. You know, like Star Wars is never done. They always go back and re-edit, reduce to the shot. I wonder if they did that when they did, you know, if they ever upscaled it to Blu-ray, if they ever upscaled it to, you know, 4K, did they go back and t the, the studio go back and touch up the, the special effects to make them better or not? But I agree, the special effects look fantastic. Like, I believe those elephants exist somewhere in the world. Elephants do exist in the world. I've, I've, I've read about <laughs> I believe he means olifants. <laughs> Somewhere there's an elf running around on top of an elephant. Good, good defense there, Tom. <laughs> all right. With that being said, round one is now concluded. Uh, all three of our contestants are tied at one apiece. We'll get back to the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king after a brief word from our sponsors. Join another Talking Studios production, Limited Lexicon, where we play through text-based adventure games. Text-based adventure games were computer games from before computers had graphics. The game uses text to describe a scene, and the player types back how they want to interact with the game. 
I'll read the text from the computer, and my co-host will feed me commands. This season, we're playing through The Hobbit from 1982 on the ZX Spectrum. Here's a quick sample. I thought uh, a lot about our first command, and I think it should be no print, because we don't want to print things as we're going along. I think by default, it's not going to print. And even <laughs> if I did print, I, where is it going to print to? 1982? I, I would imagine if we go west, we're going to be south of the troll, right? Just south of the troll land. Yeah, let's try it. You go west. The troll's clearing. The visible... Oh, <laughs> we died. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> all right the troll the troll saw us and killed us so i think we have to say the answer to the riddle then the answer is dark say dark i think talk to what Gollum. Gollum. say Gollum dark you talk to Gollum. thorin says hurry up and we died and we died so we went northeast last time so let's go southwest you go southwest. Visible exits are north, northwest. You see the valuable golden ring. Oh, wow. I need it here. That's wait, wait, wait. perfect. Oh, That's wow. perfect. Limited lexicon coming to your podcatcher and YouTube in late 2022 by Talking Studios. All right, and we're back. Before we get started with round two, though, it's a tradition on the show that we usually ask the guests the question. But since I'm the guest, I'm going to ask it to everybody. If you could write a sequel to The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, what would it be? So I, I know Tom threw out a sequel last week, and I cannot imagine what a sequel is going to be this week. Um, but something smaller. Here's, here's, here's what I'd like to see. Maybe a 40-minute movie of The Scourging of the Shire. I, I'd love to just watch that snippet. I, I understand they didn't have time to include it in this movie, but it would be great um, if a movie opened up with the hobbits reuniting, I guess it would be in Gondor, and then a quick journey back to the Shire, and then give me the story of the Shire with Sharky, the whole nine yards, I guess, maybe not Sharky since he's on a spike, but um, yeah, I would love to see the scourging of the Shire. I think that would be a cool, smaller movie. I don't think they left it out from the presentation of the final cut, just because they made it seem like that never happened. Whereas in the books it happened, but when they went back, the four of them are sitting in the bar and everyone just was like living their life like they always did before. So they just like cut that out. It would be interesting to see though, KJ. They'd have to, it's almost like a rewrite though, you know? Yeah, because Saruman's dead, right? We're assuming that Spike killed him. So it, it didn't happen, but it would be really cool to see Elijah Wood and all those guys coming back. And <laughs> I think my sequel would be more in the lines of I actually think Tolkien was trying to write this so I couldn't find the text was this this sort of idea of now that there isn't any manifestation of evil in the world in the sense of a, a Melkor or a Sauron um, that people that the kings in later years uh, you know like uh, the descendants of Aragorn or whoever takes over after him um that they sort of um, drop all their their martial virtues and whatnot, and they become kind of uh, you know sort of like lazy kings. And the movie ends up being about like the kind of the difficulty of the house of man, you know, or, or the age of man. This this fourth so kind of like Wally as the 
is that how Wally goes? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It becomes why yeah, everybody's just strapped into VR and you know, riding you know, riding a what are those freaking things called? The, Does the Shire um, become a trash dump? Is that what's gonna happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. The Shire is the one place where that kind of like good living remains, right? Like good living is, you know, like doing Shire stuff, being with the family, making sure uh, you know. Uh, Rosie, what's her name? Uh, Rosie Cotton. Is Rosie. Oh, that, Rosie that Cotton, could have been you. a question. I don't know. No, yeah, well, we're all getting so, it so now. Tom, what's the conflict? Um, I think that... <laughs> who's the, <laughs> who's the <laughs> laziest? Yeah, well, I think, I think it's just they're trying to... Um, they're trying to... Uh, I don't know. Find Find good rule again. Right, that they're trying to re revivify the line of Aragorn, and um, you know maybe find a destined person. I'm not really sure. It was more environmental. I was thinking rather than <laughs> yeah. um, rather than kind of plot. I'll dynamic. watch it. Mm -hmm. I'll go quick with my idea because it's really not a well thought out plot. But right at the end of this movie, they all the elves. Frodo, Bilbo, Gandalf, they go east in the boat. Where do they go? That's what I want to see. Yeah, that's exactly that, that was my idea. Yeah. I want I want to yeah. I want to know what happens to Bilbo and Frodo once they leave because yes. A we don't know where the elves are going and B what's going to happen when two non-elves show up. I would love I would love to see that hijinks. It's time for question 3. Toward the end of the movie we see the coronation of Aragorn finally the return of the king this is the final appearance of not only him but also most of our fellowship heroes what is aragorn's last line of the movie locked in locked in locked in with a guess i think it's a pretty good guess though but locked in all right, all right kj what is your locked in guess i'm gonna say the last thing the king says is to one of the hobbits you don't need to kneel to anyone right it's kind of a nice curtail for his story if it's not his last line i hope it is what about you tom i had basically the same thing he says my friends um you shall kneel to no one nick yeah same same story but i think i think it was something like you bow to no one but i think we're all in the same kind of boat here all right well we're going to give the points to each of you because that is the general idea, although Nick was definitely the closest. The exact line is, my friends, you bow to no one. He is talking to the oh. poor hobbits. So bow was indeed the correct word, but I think you all were on the same exact path anyhow. Uh, the reason I bring this up is I wanted to talk about Aragorn specifically. I think his character development from Fellowship all the way through The Return of the King is probably one of the standouts of this. And I think also... We've talked about how Peter Jackson rewrote this a little bit, gave us some different through lines. And I think some of the Aragorn stuff was actually for the better. Uh, and I just wanted to talk about what you thought about Aragorn's trip from the Fellowship Ranger to now the return of the king. Strider. It's really lovely because what he connects, and my word was um, enontier, which is the elfish word for rebirth. Uh, actually, I'm hoping pronouncing right slash don't really care because it's not a real language. Uh, but what we see with with Aragorn is he's kind of reborn or remade as as the king. He goes from being the 
the ranger, you know, give up the ranger, become the king. And he's reborn in this this role in the same way Gandalf is reborn as the white in the previous movie. And also then the city, which has been under the House of Stuart, sir, and I looked up this, 969 years, is now going to be kind of politically reborn as something that falls under the jurisdiction of the king, which then, you know, makes it, prepares it to enter into this new age, into this new cycle, the age of man, the fourth age. And so Aragorn's personal development as a, as a person is mirrored in the political development of this city, which is then mirrored ultimately in this kind of macro structure in this rebirth or regeneration of a new age, a new cycle comes into, into being as Aragorn takes the throne. So it's, it's really lovely. I always struggled with Aragorn, even when reading the book. And here, here's why. So in A Song of Ice and Fire, you have a bunch of characters and they don't seem to come from nowhere. They seem to have a past and possibly a future. And even even in, in uh, Star Wars, they talk about the Clone Wars in Episode Four, and you're like, oh wait, there's a history here. Like Ben Kenobi was doing something before; he didn't just show up into here. I can't imagine what Aragorn did before he met the Hobbits. They talk about he was it. ranging, he was walking around. What were his goals? What, was he just sharpening his skills? He was in a he was in a war. We saw that he was in a war with. Um... The King of Rowan was a boy. Remember that? Because he's Aragorn's like 86 years old. Well, that's what I was just going to say, too. He, he's 87, but I couldn't remember if that was just in the extended edition or if that was in the regular. But he's been, to, to both your points, he's been around for a while because he's this race of Numenorean, so they have longer lifespans for humans. But that's all we really know is that He's been around for a while. I think we also get mentioned that he was one of the Dunedin and that he knows Legolas before. I don't know, like, once again, because I've seen so many different iterations of the, it could have been The Hobbit, it could have been an extended edition, it could have been, you know, the theatrical cut, but we do know that he's been in contact with the elves and, and things like that before. But yeah, I guess his backstory isn't super fleshed out theatrically. You know what, though? I think he said he grew up with the elves. I believe that was a line in there. That's why he was so familiar and knows Elvish. And that's probably why he knows Arwen too. So we, we know what he did in his childhood and then he was 87. <laughs> yeah, we have a few things there. And he's also been purposely hidden because his uh, his life is precious, you know, because he's the the inheritor of this throne. He is the political enemy of Sauron. Yeah, I, I just I feel like Lord of the Rings didn't create the mystery around it as other media did for their for their histories. Um, I just I didn't I wasn't curious. You know, it was just like oh, this guy pops in, becomes king. But maybe that's on me. Early fantasy was very big on okay, this guy's a farm boy, and all of a sudden he's going to become the hidden king or this. I, I think those kind of like lines were much more linear. Where now audiences are expecting a little bit more twists and turns. Well, it's also how Arthur, the Arthur legend works. If you've read um, Le Mort the Arthur, the the Thomas Mallory instantiation, what happens is Arthur is the son of the king. Uh, Uther Pendragon, I think is the king's name. And then Arthur is kind of taken away and he's disguised as sort of a normie, like a 
stable boy or some not not a stable boy but the equivalent and the same thing happens with aragorn and then it is arthur who can lift the sword from the stone and that designates him as the king and not only the king it connects his lineage it's sort of like genealogical proof of who he is and aragorn or excuse me tolkien rather is i think drawing upon that legend here Aragorn is the strider. He's the random man in the town, skilled though he is, he's still a random man. And it's in the reforging of the sword that he alone can wield that designates him as the king. It is the taking of the sword that lets him put aside the ranger and become the king. So it's, it's very much taken from, from the Arthur legend. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that completely. I always read him as being Arthur, being the King Arthur of the story. I, I to, Not to... Not to keep going back to this, but I did want to bring up the, that scene where you bow to no one. It, it kind of remains to show you how humble he is. It, I feel like throughout all three of these movies, you get to see the ebb and flow of all the characters, the ups and downs. Like this character goes like, take Smeagol, for instance. He's good. He's helping them get to Mordor. And then he's betraying them and leading them to the spider. Or you get to Baromir, who's willing to help them take the ring to Mordor and then falls to its power and tries to steal it from Frodo. He, Strider I'm talking about, is probably one of the only characters in the entire film, perhaps maybe except for Sam, that pretty much never has one of those little downturns or one of those little, you know, hiccups in their moral, their moral fiber. He always turns down taking the ring. He always does the right thing. And I think this is just like the period at the end of the sentence of he is incredibly humble and he is probably the best man to be the king going forward. Yeah, there is that constant moral compass. His only flaw is he doesn't want to take his birthright. Like at first, like he has to get to the point of. Which is the thing in the movie that I think Peter Jackson changed a little bit because in the books, he's actually already has the shards of Narsil. Like he's carrying around that sword with him. Like I feel like the movies do a better job of, of painting him as a person that doesn't want power and then ascending to it. Whereas the books kind of, they never really tell you that he doesn't want it. And then he ascends to it. So I feel like that was one of the edits in the movie that I thought I'd like more than the book. It's time for question four. What is the color and object that make up the final shot of the movie before it fades to black? Locked in. Locked in with a guess. It's kind of uh, poetic. Not the guess. The answer. To, like I, I thought you were having a poetic <laughs> guess. <laughs> right. I was waiting for it. Are you going to give us a haiku? Or... <laughs> so so uh, it was, what is the color of the object well yeah what is the object and i'm like kind of a tiebreaker to it what is the color of that object that is the last thing that you see before it fades to black and credits now you got me questioning because i i think they're the same so I'm, i locked in yeah. something else too but i'm, I'm gonna uh, stay with what i got i'm i'm gonna lock in though i'm this is this is all right guess. tom what do you got for your your guest lock-in i'm gonna go with the page like the last page of the book and so the color then would be a brown and red. I think the ink is like a like a reddish. KJ, what about you? Is it not the red book? The book that Bilbo started and Frodo finished? The red book? Yeah, what about you, Nick? I have to be true to my lock-in. I'm completely wrong because it's the part of the movie where my brain just turns off like the movie is done. And that's when the boat is going out to sea and everything turns white but I realized there's more scenes after that now after thinking about it. 
All right. Well, unfortunately, none of you actually got this one correct. Uh, oh, good. We might be we might be <laughs> we might be getting the extended edition mixed up with the theatrical edition. But in the theatrical edition, the last scene that you see is you see Sam embrace his kids, embrace his wife, and then finally close the close yellow the door. door the yellow door. Hole. Oh. With the, so the yellow door is the last scene in the theatrical version. Yeah, yeah, it's the same. I was gonna say Rosie, Rosie's head. I'm trying <laughs> no, to it was the, it was the color, closing of the yellow. I, it's absolutely yes. the closing of the yellow door. Uh, yeah. I, I, I would think that isn't described as an object. That seems kind of cold. <laughs> Well, they, the, the orcs threw them objects over the over the walls yeah, of Minas Tirith. So, maybe. so the reason I brought this up is because we would this with this entire series of movies is all about the life of the hobbits, and I wanted to discuss a little bit about how their character changed from the beginning to the end. And Nick actually brought up one of the scenes that I wanted to talk about, which was the bar scene, and how they are definitely different individuals after going through this experience together. And I just wanted to get your take on the hobbits and their journey from beginning to end. Frodo dies, right? That's how we're supposed to take this, that there's the wounds that you can heal from, and then you go into the West, you die. And there's that, the, the, the 20th century idea of you can never go home again, right? That, that book, um, the title of that famous book, and that's what's happening here. The adventure so firmly, the adventure into really the underworld, into this, this dead land, so firmly transforms the person that they cease to be themselves anymore and there's a sort of death and life in there um and so this this movie has a sort of grand tragic ending to it which is really really very satisfying because it's very kind too right it's a very kind way to treat frodo he's not tortured to death or or what have you the characters we like who die are treated with great tenderness and kindness and Frodo's death is one of um, of transformation. He's a person who is, um, in some sense, too large for the Shire, and as such, he has to sort of move on into into the West. Yeah, that this this was kind of going to be what my what my sequel would have been, but I knew this question was coming, so I couldn't talk about it. But like, imagine being the hobbits, having seen all that, having been through battle, having been through war, and then returning home. And I think, like I mentioned in the uh, in the recap, not the recap, and I mentioned in the in the coming soon bit that this this time I watched it, I actually teared up a little bit towards the end. And I think this time it's because I thought about how, like that bar scene specifically, when her last time we saw them in the prancing pony, you know, Mary and Pippin are dancing on the tables and they're doing all kinds of things. And this time they're very subdued. And they're all just like happy to be with each other. But at the same time, they have drastically changed. It's almost like they have PTSD. And it's, it's, I, I, I'm sure they absolutely do. And Tom put it perfectly, like, you know, Frodo is having the hardest time of all. And I do find it very satisfying to see that Sam has kind of made it full circle and has, it looks, appears like he's going to have a, a normal, happy life. But I would like to know what happens to Mary and Pippin. And of course, I do think Frodo passes away, and that's what's symbolized in the moving on to the West. Uh, but yeah, that's I just thought that that was a very uh, he says it perfectly tragic, tragic ending, but in a, in a presented in a nice way. My one word for this episode was Gardner for a reason. After watching the whole trilogy and specifically this movie too, like again, no choice. After watching the whole trilogy and watching this movie again. 
the impact of Sam on this journey is tremendous. And, and even at the end, Frodo doesn't have the strength to get there. Sam puts him on his back and gets him there. He knows that Frodo has to make the final decision, but he does everything possible that he can to get him there. Even that scene when they're going through Mordor earlier on, we, we said, oh, well, I, I have supplies for the return journey. Then when they were in such dire straits, he started throwing everything away. He knew they weren't coming home or he had a very good feeling at that point. This was a one-way ticket. Fortunately for Eagles, but that's, that's something else entirely. They, they made it back, but yeah, that's, I, I think this watch really cemented how impactful Sam was on the fellowship. All right. Well, it wouldn't be one of my episodes if at the conclusion of round two, we had a tie. Uh, currently, we're tied at three for everybody. So here's a few tiebreaker questions. We'll see if we can, we can find a true winner. It's time for a bonus question. All right. My first tiebreaker question is towards the end of the movie, you get a, a shot of the map of Middle Earth and the, the camera is kind of sweeping through the places we've been to give you an idea or the perspective of time. And Frodo actually tells you the amount of time it had been since they had left the Shire and found their way to Mount Doom. Anybody remember how much time it was? Locked in. Locked in. <laughs> Locked in, but I have no idea. All right, well, KJ, you were the last one. So what do you think? I don't know, 18 months-ish? Uh, let's go with Tom. What did you think? 13 months to the day. Nick? 13 months. Yeah, the answer was indeed 13 months. Uh, this was definitely really, really changed from the from the book. Uh, I don't hate the change, but I also think it it makes everything a little bit less dramatic or a little less grand. That it didn't like we it didn't take as long. So that, did anybody else feel that it, way? It was years, right, in the book, it's like years? ten or twenty years, something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't know that much. There's it's also like twenty years, I think, between when Gandalf visits in the Shire and Bilbo goes on his quest. The, the time in the book is much, much more expanded. You know, there's, yeah, it's like centuries past, what, like 10 years past in a, in a, in a moment. Um, I don't know, I, I, Chris, I don't really have a problem with it. Time is such an odd thing in the book. It's like a year passes almost with the, with the speed of a month in, in the book that, having to adjust to that as a viewer in a world where we're really spending less time, you probably spend more time reading the book than you need to watching the movies. Um, I, I didn't have a problem with making the years resemble our years more closely. That, that didn't seem to bother me. I just think, I think it's something that didn't have to be said. Like I, I, I liked the idea of being able to have my own head that, Oh, this was, this was, this could have possibly been four or five years long. It could have been decades. It could have been two months. I think the fact that they just put a pin and say this was 13 months to the day just kind of pigeonholes me into a into a weird scenario where like we're told how far away Mordor is from the Shire, but that's so it seems like everything had like I don't think Frodo ever had an off day if that was true. If it took that if it's if the journey is that long and he goes through all of these these tribulations, like that means that he was going through something on a daily basis. And I I guess now that I say that out loud, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I think I would have liked it if it was just kind of maybe left unsaid. I looked it up real quick because I had to. It does look like the journey in the book was probably like just barely over 20 years from what I'm, I'm seeing here. That puts a whole different scope 
However, the average audience probably doesn't care if it was 13 months or 20 years. In fact, it probably would be harder to believe it was 20 years because of how fast paced these movies are. And you would also it like presumably age these characters like they're in their early they look like they're 22 they'd have to look like you know me oh, that's by the time true they I back. Didn't even think yeah um and i think in the book you get the impression that people age at a slower pace both men and hobbits and whomever else at the end of the day it's probably the fact that they didn't want to age the characters on screen that they did it but that's that's a good point it's time for a bonus question all right. As we had already, one of the questions previously in round number one talked about when Gandalf is riding and taking Pippin to Minas Tirith for the first time. Do you remember what Gandalf says to Shadowfax right before that trip in order to make that trip oh. quicker? Locked in. Locked in? Locked in with a guess each. What do you think, KJ? Uh, something along the lines of um, go with the most speed that you've ever gone before. <laughs> a little bit different phrasing, but something with like riding with great haste. Show us the meaning of haste. All right. Although all three of you were on the same page, Tom got the quote exactly yes. perfect. That's so funny. we're going to give Tom the extra point, and Tom is going to be the winner of our Took Return of the King episode. Yes. Haste was in there. Haste was in mm -hmm. there. Show us the meaning of haste. Mm hmm shows the meaning of haste <laughs> and this also <laughs> saves chris from having to come up with more extra bonus questions yeah my, my other bonus questions here were not good so i'm <laughs> we're gonna leave it at that it's time for movie rent we were talking this episode about how a lot of people have multiple names and one of the characters we talked about today was aragorn do you know all the other names for aragorn well, we have Strider. Um, is is no Mithrandir is uh, Gandalf, right? Correct. Yes. What are, what are his other names? He, I know he was born with a different name. He has a different name at birth. No guesses. We're we're gonna jump into it. Okay. Oh, do you want a number or? Yeah. So no, oh. no, it's, it's it's fine. I'll just break them down. I don't know how many actually appear in the film, <laughs> so. This is kind of going into source material too. But I don't, and I also don't know what language this is in because they have in parentheses Strider for like Telkantar. I guess that must be Elvish, Elisar, Elfstone. That's what that means. Thorangil, Eagle of the Star, and Estelle, which means hope. So he's got a. Oh, I, don't, name. I don't recall hearing any of those in the, in the, the movies themselves, but no, definitely in the I think books. Just Strider. Yeah, I think just Strider. You're right, though. Uh, Gandalf has a ton of names. Uh, they called him, someone called him Greybeard, Mithrandir. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Yeah, I don't remember his birth name either when he was first Maiar. Um. So during the Fellowship episode, I mentioned you catastrophe, which is the idea that is kind of the opposite of catastrophe. So a bunch of terrible things coming together to make the best possible outcome. And in uh, the Fellowship episode, we talked about how Boromir approaches Frodo and tries to take the ring, which gives him the epiphany that he should be saving the hobbits, which allows him to save Merry and Pippin. So I want to extend that you catastrophe to say if Pippin hadn't survived that, he wouldn't have been able to look into the Planktonir, the, the eye globe Lantern thing. That, the Palantir, yeah. The, yep, the network that allows <laughs> all these dudes to talk potentially. 
which again seems like a bad thing that he would do that. But that's what distracts Sauron and allows Frodo to pass into Mordor. So without all these terrible things happening in sequence, the ring being destroyed could not have happened. That eucatastrophe would not have occurred. So I, I just love looking for eucatastrophe. To further in the, in that point, when he was looking at the Palantir, he also got a glimpse of where Sauron was going to attack. So not only did it have that distraction, they actually got useful information. So there's this book, um, and it's Tolkien in the Classical World, edited by Hamish Williams. And it's a collection of essays on Tolkien. And there's one of the essays uh, by Benjamin Eldon Stevens, which is about uh, eucatastrophe. His middle name is Elvin? Eldon. E-L-D-O-N. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Um, but it's about um, about eucatastrophe. And he is looking at the kind of classical idea that you see from um, the, the Odyssey or the Aeneas, or the Aeneid rather, of the underworld journey of the hero going into the underworld, um, also known as catabasis, and encountering the dead. And we see that a lot here. Right? We see uh, uh, Sam and Frodo go into a sort of underworld when they enter into um, when they enter into Mordor. We see literally our hero Aragorn go into the dead world to recruit the, these these spirits or whatnot. And it looks like Stevens's argument is that um, that whereas the ancient stories, like the Odyssey, the Aeneas, depict the depict death in the negative, in Tolkien's work, um, everything is measured against the positive prospects that these kind of journeys into the underworld can give, and the fact that there is a afterlife that's positive that exists beyond this, right? So, you know, this is the, the King of Rohan saying, I am now worthy to go to the hall of my fathers, you know, that type of thing. Uh, or Aragorn saying, I do not fear death, or the, the ghosts being redeemed from their crimes and being able to move on. Um, and he argues that um, the underworld journey, this is, um, Eldon Stevens argues this, the underworld journey is actually a sign of a turn for the better. So going into death, going into that underground space, going into catabasis is a sort of large scale eucatastrophe, right? It's it's going or encountering the absolute, this absolute, um, you know, death, catastrophe, the, the danger and the awfulness of it. And that actually creates that cosmic turn that leads to redemption and, and good things. And so I think, KJ, your point of like how important eucatastrophe is to these different scenes and whatnot, I think is mirrored, especially in this movie, even more, more than the others um, in the larger structure, right? It's about bravely going into catastrophe. And for that reason, there is redemption and rebirth, which is, you know, where my, uh, and I'll, I'll finish up in a second, but this is where my word, comes in, in OTA, the, the word I had is the elfish word for rebirth or regeneration. Um, and so I think that that your point, KJ, is, is a really good one because I think it speaks to the macro structure of this film. Wait a minute. How do we end this episode without revisiting 
the sequence with Frodo Gollum in Mount Doom. Oh, good sequence. Like that's mm -hmm. a pivotal moment of everything. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like uh, Frodo's heart fails in the end, right? And it's only by chance that the ring ends up being you catastrophe. <laughs> ah, beat you, beat you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say yeah. There, I I don't think I could pick it apart, but there's got to be some you catastrophe with Sam there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's um, he loses his his heart fails. Gollum doesn't actually die because Gollum's a malicious figure at this point. Gollum wounds him. He takes his finger from him, and yet it all ends up working out. Um, actually, yeah, I guess the U catastrophe is not with Sam. It's with Smeagol. Mm -hmm. yeah. If Smeagol hadn't got to that point, Frodo would have failed. Yeah. But because of this terrible creature that was following them around. Mm -hmm. Even at the end, though, with Smeagol, Gollum, whatever you want to call him, he is just overjoyed to have the ring back. He is in a world of bliss. And I love that sequence when he's falling down and he's just looking with such admiration at the ring, even as it starts burning up in his hands. Yeah, it, it's, it, it is the, that tragic ending, right? I mean, there, there is so much tragedy here and, and Schmeagel is, is one of those kind of tragic romantic figures, a, a tragic figure within this romance, um, as is Frodo. And it's, you know, and it's interesting, Frodo leaves incomplete, right? His, he's physically disembodied in some way that, you know, we could see that it's not only the wound from, from Wintertop or yeah, weather, Weathertop, wound. yeah, Weathertop in, in his shoulder, but it's also now that the journey's over, he, his part of his body has been taken from him. Um, so it's a nice symbol for, for what's happened to Frodo. Well, I'm going to try to stay as scholarly as Tom was. I want to talk about the people that live on top of the mountains. Do you remember when when Pippin yes! lights Pippin lights the fires of Gondor to like alert all of the realms of man to come and help Gondor has called for aid? Who lives at the top of those mountains? Like they're like out those in the beacons. They're out in the middle of nowhere. Like, can you imagine being the lighthouse keeper living on the top of a of a New Zealand mountain in the middle of the snow? Like, it's absolute madness to me. I picture them drawing straws <laughs> and it's like, oh crap, you got Mountain Duty today. But you're right. I, every time I see that scene, I'm like, I, who is I, up there? I love that scene and I hate that scene simultaneously. It's great. I, the visual. I love the visual of it. I love seeing the mountains of New Zealand that Peter Jackson obviously had footage of that he wanted to include. And I love the idea of being able to communicate over long distances with these gigantic bonfires. But I do, every time I watch it, get myself sucked out of the movie to like my realistic logical brain says that somebody has to be there to light that fire. And when you look at those vistas, those are steep, rocky, craggy mountains. And it would be hard living to live up there for any amount of time. I go even one step further, Chris. They lit the fire. They have to build a new pyre. <laughs> you know what I mean? They have to replace it. They're like, is it really worth it to light this? Like, I don't want to drag all this wood up here. Well, not, not to, to burst the bubble, but the dude doesn't have to be up there, right? As long as they can see from their town the the next closest pyre then they spend an hour or two getting up to agreed. maybe half agreed. a day but it's still faster comms than yeah. agreed but we're led to believe as we're watching the scene we unfold we see one fire erupt 
and then on screen, no no transition or shots. The next one in the distance lights up. So we're expected this is happening almost instantaneously. That's how we can have a movie in thirteen months and not twenty, 20 years. years. Exactly. <laughs> That's the it was the fire guys that took forever to. <laughs> the fire guys are the reason I have a problem with the timing of this movie. I guess. Oh, the fire guys ruin everything. Jeepers. I'm pretty sure when they go over that scene too, on some of them you see a person. Like lighting it. Yeah, I'm sure. Not all of them. Yeah. But I, I, same thing, Chris. Horrible post. I was Horrible. I was going to count how many fires you saw lit or lighted rather, because I thought that would be a question. <laughs> but I, I thought I, I I watched this movie until one in the morning last night because I didn't have time earlier. And so I thought, oh, God, I'm, I'll just get the question wrong. I don't have yeah, time to, <laughs> to go back here. here. Yeah. And you still won. Yeah, well, that wasn't a question. <laughs> well, just like those fire guys, Tom lit up this episode, and I'd like to congratulate him once again as the winner. Congratulations, Tom. Congratulations. Oh, With a you. hasty win. Oh, no one <laughs> shall kneel before me. Or something. I don't know. Let's bow, put that. Bow. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I blame a song of ice and fire. Mm-hmm. You can find more of our content there, wherever you listen to podcasts on our YouTube channel, Twitter at Talking Studios, and our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com. We are extremely grateful to all those who subscribe, like, follow, and leave a review. Of the dozen or so endings, which was your favorite? Let us know on Twitter, TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com, or give us a call at 201-467-8679. You can find me on Twitter at ThomasLayman15 and check out our sister podcast, Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side. You can find me on Twitter at KJ1000. And if you'd like to get a hold of me, reach out to the boys on Twitter at Talking Studios. I can also be found on Twitter at The Nicknamed. Join us next time when we start a talking TV trivia block by exploring the new Disney Plus limited series, Obi-Wan. Stay tuned for our first impression of this series. Ding, 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 ding. Next week, we'll be discussing the first episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And if you'd like to watch along, we'll keep spoilers limited to the current episode being discussed. Chris, how was your watch of the series? This is one of the series that I was most looking forward to that Disney has done since they've done Disney+. And I want to say that it didn't disappoint. It's just really hard for a TV show to be set in a time frame where you know what happened before it. And you know what happened after it. So I think a lot of the things that maybe I'm not going to like as much come from the fact that I already know how it ends and I already saw how it began. Like this is the middle chapter that they're trying to to shoehorn in. But honestly, it's a Star Wars show and I love Star Wars. So I'm, I'm here for all of it. And I did really, really like the Obi-Wan series. What about you, Tom? What did you think of your watch? I did watch it on my computer to give to, to to give the stats here my you know disney plus with my new speakers and what have you i yeah it's it's a show <laughs> i watched all the episodes i, I enjoy the mandalorian i think a lot more we did the mandalorian last year at this time and i had some criticism of criticisms of it i'm not a the biggest Mandalorian fan, but the Mandalorian has a sort of verve and spirit to it. There's a bit of fun. There's a bit of kind of Saturday morning energy to it, which I think is unfortunately missing from a lot of comic book movies and media that's coming out. And Star Wars kind of falls into this, this realm, right? Of uh, sort of fun child 
hood influenced types of media. Um, and a lot of it now has become much more, more serious. And I think this show is uh, much less light than the Mandalorian. It's much more, um, I don't want to say self-important because that isn't exactly right, but it is dealing with something like the American myth, right? You know, the Skywalker series is sort of become the American Bible in, in, in its own way. And so it really almost can't have a light touch, right? This is Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and, and these huge names. Yeah, and so there is a sort of weight to this material that I, I don't think necessarily helps it. it. And it makes it almost feel slow. Um, and that was my general first impression. KJ, how was your first impression? So I, I really enjoyed this show, audience. Um, and I'm more of a movie guy. I don't watch uh, too many TV shows, but I was really excited. I watched this one week to week, which was really fun. Um, and I think the last time I did that was Game of Thrones. So, you know, every every Wednesday I was like, ooh, let's watch um, Obi-Wan. Um, but spoilers... It starts with a recap, which was really good for my mom. So if you're like a Star Wars fan, but you're not really sure where this fits in, don't worry. It starts with a really good recap. Yes, it takes place on Tatooine, like all the Star Wars stuff. So it gets real confusing, but don't worry. The recap will set you straight. Uh, but trigger warning, this came out three days after the Texas school shooting. And it opens up with a pretty tough scene to watch with that in mind. So just want to give you guys a heads up if you haven't seen it yet. It, the, the opening scene's kind of tough to watch. Um, also, I think Star Wars works best when our heroes are the underdogs. And I think this is a great example of that. Um, how about you, Nick? What do you think of Obi-Wan? I was surprised actually how much you were like praising it before we started this series, because you actually wanted to take over the questions, which is awesome because you had a passion for it. I didn't have the same passion. Now, I don't think it was bad. I think it was okay. But I think the big challenge I had was in my head, this was overhyped in the sense that you would hear rumors of this project. It's going to be a movie. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. And finally, it found a home on streaming. So there was a lot of hype already built up to this, some expectations. Maybe I was biased by some story plot lines that I thought were going to happen that didn't. But it was um, a little inconsistent with the energy to me. So there's certain scenes and certain parts I really like. And other parts, I'm like, they just phone that in. So that was my problem. I think we'll get into it as we progress through the episodes in the weeks to come. But that was my biggest hurdle. I will say, I do like The Mandalorian. I'm specifically saying season one, but the way it started off stronger, I thought that was really saying that Star Wars is back after the last trilogy. I'll leave it at that. Boba Fett, there are action scenes, the book of Boba Fett, which I actually really enjoyed in part, sometimes better than this, but the flow of that show was all over the place. So at least this had a streamlined story that it wanted to tell, and we'll explore that in the weeks to come. Obi-Wan Kenobi is only available on Disney Plus at the time of this recording, and probably in perpetuity.